I was just so terrified. I actually had this thought that somebody was going to stand up and shoot me. But I knew that I had to tell this story because I knew that there were other people out there who would recognize themselves in that story. It's the TMI Project Podcast, a series of stories about the too much information parts of ourselves we usually leave out because we're too ashamed or embarrassed. I'm your host of today's episode, Eva Tenuto, and this is season four, Pride Stories. Since 2010, TMI Project has collected over 2,000 true stories from people with a burning desire to write and tell theirs. Here's what we believe. When you share the story you're most afraid to tell, it turns into a superpower because our vulnerability is where we connect. It's where our power lies. Individually, when we get that story out, the one we've kept to ourselves all this time, it creates a subtle shift in our lives. But collectively, that shift is seismic. In season four of the TMI Project podcast, Pride Stories, we're going to profile some of the most incredible LGBTQIA storytellers and follow their narratives right up until the moment they walk on stage and read their monologues live in front of an audience. But before we get started, we just want to let you know that as the TMI implies, some content might be too much information for some listeners. And in today's episode specifically, we will be having a candid conversation about suicide, how it impacts the LGBTQIA community, and how storytelling is crucial for our joy and survival. Please take care of yourselves as you listen, and know that help is always available at thetrevorproject.org. And remember, your support keeps our content free and accessible to everyone who wants to listen, so if you like what you hear and you're able to chip in, thank you. You can give what you can at tmiproject.org, where you will also find some fabulous merch. Speaking of which, this season is brought to you by Mr. Julie T's Queer T-shirts for all identities. Don't just say gay, scream it out loud with Mr. Julie T's. A portion of proceeds from all T-shirt sales will be donated to TMI Project to keep the creation and amplification of queer stories alive. You can follow on Instagram at Mr. Julie Tees and shop your favorite styles at MrJulieTees.com. Now, let's dive in. I'm sure many of you have heard of The Trevor Project, the first 24-hour suicide lifeline for LGBTQIA youth, an organization that has likely saved hundreds of thousands of queer youth since its inception 24 years ago. What you may not know is that The Trevor Project was born out of someone being brave enough to tell their own radically true story. Today, I had a chance to speak to that someone my friend and one of my very special creative partners, Celeste Lacine. I am excited to share the conversation we had about what it was like for them to tell that story in the 90s. And we're going to talk about how we joined forces 20 years after the Trevor Project was founded to nurture a new collection of stories into this ever-changing world. I hope you enjoy our conversation and hearing one of the very special stories that came out of the work we did together. I 
I can't think of a story that better illustrates what we mean by changing the world one story at a time than the story we're about to share with you. This story is about the power of facing fear, being bold, digging deep, sharing bravely despite it all, and then watching it ripple beyond your wildest dreams, changing people, culture, and the world for future generations. Welcome, Celeste Lacine. Oh, that was such a nice introduction. Thank you so much. Of course. You know what I was thinking about? It's ironic that I'm recording this in my closet. (laughs) (laughs) Ironic or wrong? I'm not sure. (laughs) Of all the interviews to do, it felt wrong to be recording this one in my closet, but thank God we're not there anymore. So I would like to start by learning a little bit about the beginning. And I know you are from New Jersey. Is that right? Oh, that beginning. That beginning. Yeah, Yeah, we're going way back. (laughs) I grew up in the 1960s. I was clearly different and I was clearly queer, but nobody really called me that. There were some bad names they called me. I actually thought I was an alien for a long time until I learned that there were other people like me. But when I was growing up, I really had no concept of gayness or queerness or homosexuality. It wasn't in the culture at all at that time. And I don't think I encountered it until I was in my early adolescence. I was thunderstruck by the fact that there were other people who felt the same way that I did because I had grown up my entire childhood feeling like I was the only person in the world who had what they call same-sex attraction. Mm -hmm. I was 14 or 15. I went to work in a summer theater and everyone was queer. And even the people who weren't queer were queer. And I was like, oh, this is my homeland. And that sort of set my trajectory of my life from that moment forward. It is such a common experience, that feeling of not knowing that anyone else exists like you, especially from that time period, which I was just looking up and found that in 1952, the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Manual lists homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disturbance that could be treated. It's a good thing in 1958 I wasn't able to read uh, (laughs) (laughs) or pronounce those words. When I was growing up, homosexuality was considered a mental disease, as you pointed out, Mm -hmm. also a crime and also a sin. Mm -hmm. I was raised in a world in which the people around me thought I was a criminal or potentially crazy and definitely going to hell. And I just thought that was insane. I really thought it was crazy. I didn't go around telling people because I didn't want my legs broken or my face slapped. But I really thought that was an insanity, that the world was arranged around that. And that was what was considered normal. And it's taken more than 50 years for that to really change. And some of those things haven't budged. I was living in a future that hadn't yet arrived. And there was something, it sounds like, inside you that regardless of the external messages that were coming in, was able to hold on to this core knowledge that what you were was not wrong, but the world and the way the world perceived you was. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that thing was love. Mm -hmm. I couldn't wrap my head around the idea that my love that I was feeling was somehow wrong, defective, or bad. I just couldn't believe it. It just didn't make any sense to me that could be bad because I loved it so much. But I was very clear that people thought it was wrong, defective, and bad. And it's not to say that I escaped the harm that came 
from mm-hmm. those projections onto me and living into a world in which I had no ability really to perceive my life as an adult. I couldn't imagine having a job and uh, a relationship, a spouse. Any of those things were not within my imagination. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about how did it impact the little boy version of you to be living in that kind of environment? I think it's something that most queer people understand, which is that you grow up a secret to the people that you love the most. You are slightly invisible because you have to keep a part of yourself, the most essential part, the love that you have inside you, you have to keep it a secret. And they don't want to know, or at least in my case, they didn't want to know. And I know that children can sense the disapproval of their parents, even if nothing is ever said. And as a child, I was protecting my sense of myself against that disapproval. And I'd even go so far as to say disgust. Who wants to live with that? Mm-hmm. I remember when I told my mom that Julie and I were dating, who is now my wife, it was the first time that I came out to her. I came out pretty late. And she expressed concern for how the world was going to receive me and that it was going to be dangerous. To which I said, I think that straight women who are with men face some pretty extreme danger in the world. And being with Julie doesn't actually seem that dangerous. Although I knew, of course, what she was talking about. But I said to her, if I know that I have your love and approval, I have the grounding to go into the world and face whatever comes at me. It's what I hope parents listening will understand is that even if they're scared about what their kids are going to go through outside of the family, that that acceptance is such a huge thing to be able to offer your children. It's crucial. And if parents understood the statistics of how in danger their children are in terms of self-harm and suicide ideation, when their parents withhold that approval, I don't understand a parent that would knowingly put their child in harm's way by withholding the one thing that is proven to be the most effective way to stand between a child and their own sense of self-harm. Absolutely. So let's get to the part where you made a choice to share this part of your story. I was living in New York and I'm an actor and a writer and producer and I would write these shows. I'd play all these different characters. It was my way of being able to express my creativity mm-hmm. in a way that was fun. And in the early 90s, I was working on a show called Word of Mouth. And I was living through the AIDS epidemic mm-hmm. in New York City. My friends were dying. Everyone in the theater community was dying. It was a very rough time. And I happened to hear one day a news report on NPR about teen suicide. And at the very end, They just mentioned that gay and lesbian teenagers were three to four times more likely to consider suicide than their heterosexual peers. I'd never heard this before. It was Mm. just the very beginning of that research. It just seemed insane to me that there was this generation that I was in the midst of and that I was living through this decimation of this generation of gay men. And then there was this other generation coming up that was also in danger. I started asking everybody that I knew who was gay or lesbian about their teenage years. And everybody, including myself, had not only considered suicide, but had attempted suicide at a certain point. It seemed too much of a coincidence. And getting people to actually tell me their stories fired me up in some way and made me say, this has to stop. 
I pulled out all these old journals that I had of myself when I was 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. I read through them and I created this piece. It was 10 minutes long. It was part of a larger show. It was called Dear Diary. And I named myself Trevor. I did the show off, off, off Broadway. Then I did <laughs> off, off Broadway. Then I did off Broadway. It was, like, it was a journey. I remember the first time that I walked out on stage to perform Trevor, the very first time I was in a little tiny theater downtown. There were maybe 50 seats in the theater and not all of them were filled. <laughs> but I was just so terrified, truly, truly terrified, so scared that I actually had this thought that somebody was going to stand up and shoot me. I just thought, oh my God, you are saying something. As a gay man, to be talking about young children, I had so much internalized homophobia mm -hmm. that I had to overcome. But I knew that I had to tell this story because I knew that there were other people out there who would recognize themselves in that story. Eventually, V came on board, formerly Eve Ensler. This was before she wrote and created the Vagina Monologues. And she came on board as director. The show got moved uptown. Mike Nichols and Elaine May, they produced the show off-Broadway. And Trevor had his moment. And around that time, I met Peggy Reisky and Randy Stone, who were two producers. And they asked me if I would adapt it into a screenplay, which I did. And it won an Academy Award. It was such a shock to me. I was in the midst of living in New York, doing my show, and also caring for a lot of people who were dying, mm. really, is what was happening. So tell us a little bit about what happened after that film won the Academy Award. So we skip ahead to 1998, and Randy made some arrangements for us to be able to put Trevor, the short film, on HBO. As we were preparing for it, Peggy came up with the idea to put a telephone number at the end of the film in case there were young people out there who identified with the character of Trevor. And there was no suicide prevention lifeline specifically for gay and lesbian uh, young people. And so we just decided that we were going to do it. That first night that the film aired on HBO, there were over 1,500 telephone calls that came in from young people all over the country. And I just felt at that moment that there was a greater need for what we were offering, which was a place that was going to listen to young people and accept them for who they are. And it certainly was the moment that I understood how powerful a story can be and what it can do in the world. And since then, over the last 24 years, tell us a little bit about what Trevor Project has turned into and the people it's impacted. It's hard to know because all the calls are anonymous and all the contact with young people is anonymous. So it's safe for them. So it's hard to estimate. Almost 25 years, they've been taking calls. They started Trevor Chat. There's Trevor Text. There's something called Trevor Space. One of the things that's so moving as I travel around the country working with young people, everywhere I go, all you have to do is mention the Trevor Project and their eyes light up. They know that there's somebody there for them even if they've never used it, or they know somebody who used it and it saved their life. Just this month, I was in Indianapolis and talking to a school, 300 people in a, an assembly, and somebody walked up to me afterwards, and I can see the look, and I'm like, oh my God. And then they break down crying because they just want to thank me that Trevor exists. 
it's greater than anything to have a real human being standing in front of you, knowing that they're alive and they're going to go on and tell their story. I want to take a turn now to the work that we did together. There's a little context in 2018 when the Trevor Project was celebrating their 20-year anniversary. We partnered, you and TMI Project, to do a national call for storytellers who had used the lifeline at some point to make a life-saving call. And as you had mentioned, all of those stories had been anonymous up until then. And we wanted to find out who are these people and how has this support and this moment changed people's lives. In this episode, we're going to be featuring one of those storytellers, Ray Taylor. Um, Oh, yay. Yay, Ray. (laughs) We found 10 people. We brought them to New York City. And in five days in a hotel basement in Brooklyn, (laughs) we created a performance, produced an off-Broadway show and recorded the whole thing to document it in a film coming out shortly called Stay. We will get to hear Ray's story. But before that, I was wondering... What makes it so important for this group of people to share their stories? So there are so many people who have been there, either considered suicide or who have attempted suicide. And the stigma against it is so great that it shuts people up and they don't want to be a part of that statistic or that group. Mm -hmm. There's something great to be learned from people who attempted a suicide, who survived, because what their lives have become, what they would have missed. I think we need to hear about that moment. You realize, oh my God, thank God it didn't work. Mm-hmm. We need to hear those moments to know what followed after that and the incredible life that you get to live. Yeah. When you understand the ripple effects of one fateful decision. Yeah, a permanent decision for what could be a temporary problem. Yeah. We are going to play a clip from Ray about what it was like to take the workshop and be a part of the experience before we hear his story. It was surreal. I flew into a city that I'd never been to. I was thrown into a room with a bunch of strangers I'd never been before. I opened up about the darkest moments in my life and cried and laughed and bonded with these amazing people who I still talk to and connect with to this day and left a completely different person. My life literally changed for the better. What is so moving about the whole process is what you do and the way that TMI actually creates this container to allow people to go to their deepest and darkest moment of their life, a place that they would have never shared before with other people. It's not just telling stories. It actually is a form of healing to shine the light on the places that are hurt and hidden and love them. I think now is the perfect time to share Ray's story. Here is Ray Taylor reading his story from the off-Broadway performance Lifelines, Queer Stories of Survival, which will also be featured in a forthcoming documentary called Stay. And be sure to stay tuned after Ray shares his story to hear how the experience impacted his life. Here's Ray. I am here to tell you a story. A story about the night the Trevor Project saved my life. 
I had recently moved from Southern California to Memphis, Tennessee. I had just broken up with my first girlfriend of four years, who I was still madly in love with, and I was constantly fighting with my parents. So a clean start seemed like a good idea. But once I arrived, I realized I had isolated myself from everyone who mattered, and that the one person I knew in Memphis, the person who I'd moved for, didn't actually care about me at all. They just wanted to control me. Tonight, I come home from work to our house across the street from the University of Memphis to my roommate giving me a hard time. I'm never good enough for them, so I go for a walk on campus alone. My walk takes me to the top of a parking structure. I climb up onto a short safety wall, and I look down at the ground below me. Up here, there's a breeze that cuts down on the Memphis humidity. After about ten minutes, I decide to sit on the narrow wall, just for a moment. As I look out at the view for the first time in a long time, my brain is silent. That never happens. Maybe that just goes to show that my decision's the right one. The breeze feels nice. It's calm, refreshing. Everything I haven't been feeling in my life lately. For the first time in a long time, I feel at peace. I pull out my phone. I want to text my mom. I miss her more than anything. I hope my mom will forgive me for what I'm about to do. I hope she doesn't blame herself. It's not her fault. Maybe I should text her and tell her. I unlock my phone. My phone opens up to a web page. I'm surprised the campus Wi-Fi doesn't usually reach all the way up here. Earlier, I had seen a sticker on a light pole for the Trevor Project. I love stickers. <laughs> I tried to open the website on my phone, but this was early iPhone era, and it didn't load properly until now. I click the phone number, and my phone prompts me, "Do you want to call this number?" I don't know. Do I? I mean, I guess I do. I click the number, right? So I hit yes. Put the phone on speaker and place it on the wall next to me. Someone picks up. I don't remember much of the actual call. At some point, I ask, "Is there more to this world than where I am right now?" And they said something I will never forget. You are worth more than just this moment. I remain silent. I sit with that, and they sit there with me. They don't prompt me to keep talking. They just let me sit in silence, alone, but not alone, connected. Eventually, I pull my legs back over to the other side of the wall and plant my feet on solid ground. I grab my phone off the wall and hold it. Thank you, I whisper. I'm surprised I can even speak. I don't want them to know I'm crying. For some reason, I want to seem like I'm stronger than I feel. I hang up a few moments later and sit on the roof for another hour. 
Eventually, the breeze dies down and the humidity increases. So I walk back to the house. My roommate is drunk and yelling at me, why didn't I answer their calls? I go to my room and I lock my door. Not tonight. Thank you. We caught up with Ray recently, and here's what he had to say. I definitely was not planning on opening up and talking about my suicide and how the Trevor Project ultimately saved me. The night I told my story, I could not stop shaking. It wasn't fear. It was more of a, this is going out into the world. This is going to change someone's life. I was more excited I was just ready to let this off my chest. I'm ready to move past it. It's not something that I'm ashamed of anymore. It's rather a part of me. It's like, in order to get to who I am today, I had to go through that. I've told it multiple times since to people and strangers at events. And since we did Lifelines, I have moved out of the state of Wisconsin. It wasn't a great environment for me. I left a relationship that ultimately wasn't the right relationship for me. I followed my dream. I enrolled in film school. I've been in film school for the last year and a half. We weren't filming enough in school, so I challenged myself to film 12 short films in 12 months to get experience and practice. I told the story twice at Trevor Live, once in New York and once in LA. I volunteer with them now because of it. I've been interviewed by magazines. I've volunteered with PFLAG, gone to high schools and colleges and professional businesses, police departments, and helped them go through inclusivity training by telling my story. I've opened up about who I am. I've come out as transgender, which is something I've known for 15 years, but I've been afraid to admit. I've been medically transitioning for about a year now. Recently had top surgery. Literally everything in my life that I've always been afraid to just go after because of failure, just left after I stood on a stage in front of 300 strangers in New York. It took any fear I had in me. The list goes on. My goal is to challenge all the cis straight white men in Hollywood and bring queer stories to life and normalize them to where they're not surrounded and rooted in trauma and bring the happy, joyful, adventurous, queer stories to life that just make people happy. I just plan on challenging what people are calling the norm and reminding people that queer people are normal. We're just like everyone else. A very special thank you to Ray Taylor and Celeste Lacine for sharing their stories with us. Thank you both so much for joining us. Stay tuned next week when I will introduce you to the new hosts of season four, TMI Project co-founder and my wife, Julie Novak, and TMI Project operations and programs manager and my partner in all things TMI, Blake File. You are in for a real treat to spend the season with these two and will be left in very competent, very gay hands. I can't wait for you to meet them and hear their pride stories in the next episode. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. 
TMI Project is available to offer true storytelling workshops and performances for your school or workplace. This episode of season four of the TMI Project podcast, Pride Stories, was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston and mixed and mastered by Stevie Mann. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Our operations and programs manager is Blake File. Our marketing and digital coordinator is Laura Marie Ruoco. Our administrative assistant is Elijah Jackson. Our graphic designer is Lauren Gill. Our workshop leaders are Perla Iora, Capely Kalnick, Haley Downs, Rain Grayson, Ray Lipkin, Dara Laurie, Micah, Julie Novak, Blake File, and me, Eva Tenuto. To learn more, support our work, and find a very special writing prompt so you can start telling your pride story, visit tmiproject.org slash podcast. <laughs>